Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Micah, the second chapter. Micah chapter 2, if you will. I want to give you a twofold division of this chapter. Verses 1 through 11 is the guilt and punishment of Israel. Verses 12 and 13, the future restoration. So it's a very simple division. <clears throat> the guilt and punishment of Israel, 2, 1 through 11. The future restoration, 2, 12 and 13. <clears throat> Notice verse 1, it says, Woe to them that devise iniquity. That means to plan it. I mean, they're busy about making their plans for iniquity. You know, there are people in like, like that in the world. As Christians, we hate it when we're caught up in iniquity. Or we fall into temptation. And we fail of what we ought to be by the grace of God. But here's people that deliberately, knowingly, and willingly plan iniquity and work evil upon their beds. When the morning is light, they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. They can do as they please is the way they feel. Now, verse uh, 2 states the sins, Israel's sins. And by the way, it's the same as we studied in the book of Amos. We have specific sins that are mentioned here that the nobles of Israel have committed. It's bad enough when people of the ordinary... Ordinary citizenships fall into sins, but for leadership to fall into sin and then lead everyone else along with them, that is a further tragedy, isn't it? Leaders, they're more expected of leaders and their nobles than for them to lead them into sin and to fall into sin and be the examples of it ahead of them. But this was Israel's nobles and the sins they had committed. And we're going to name these specific sins uh, there's idolatry and covetousness and oppression. And these are the same sins that Amos previously, when we studied the book of Amos, pointed out that there was idolatry and that there was uh, covetousness and there was oppression. They oppressed the poor and the needy. And therefore, punishment would fall upon them very soon for what they were doing. So in verse 1 it says, Woe to them that devise iniquity and work evil upon the beds. When the morning is light, they practice it because it is the in the power of their hand, and they covet fields and take them by violence. You see, there's the oppression and the violence. And houses and take them away. So they oppress a man and his house, even a man and his heritage. They take a man's property away from him, his inheritance away from him. And this was forbidden by the very law that they were supposed to be upholding. God had given them a law concerning those that had a heritage or a house or inheritance and had told them exactly what to do. There are many references. Uh, we could cite one in Exodus, but I want to give you one in Deuteronomy that's just a, one specific verse. It's 5 verse 21. Deuteronomy 5 verse 21 says, Neither shalt thou desire thy neighbor's wife, neither, neither shalt thou covet thy neighbor's house. Now look, his field or his maidservant, or his manservant, or his ox, or his ass, or anything that is thy neighbor's. So not only his uh, wife and his maidservants, but his house and his fields, his possessions, his place of living. And yet they coveted these, and they took them away. Look, it holds your place in Micah chapter 2, verse 2. They covet fields and take them away by violence. They don't care how they get them. If you remember old Ahab, king of Israel, he wanted to take away Naboth's vineyard because it was right next to his property. And Naboth says, God forbid it that I should give you my inheritance. 
Because it was against God's law. He says, this is mine and my family's. It belongs to them. And he said, well, old Ahab said, I'll give you a great price for it. And Naboth refused. So uh, Ahab, if you remember the story, went up. You know, he was he was a man when he wanted to get things done, get things, but he had to turn to Jezebel to get them done. And so he went whining to Jezebel, and he says, "I wanted Naboth's vineyard, and he wouldn't let me have it. And I offered to pay him for it. I offered him a good profit or a good price. So he laid upon his bed and pouted for a while. And finally, Jezebel took hold of it, and she had Naboth killed and his vineyard taken away, and and uh, took it by force." Well, anyway, that's the way some people do. And these, if you notice, it says they covet fields and take them by violence and houses and take them away. Some people do not care how they get what they want and who they trample on to get it. And if you think, uh, we know we, that there's some good people in the world, but there's a lot of evil people too. There's a lot of people that work just in that way. And, and they really don't care how they get what they want to get. And it says... And so they oppress a man and his house, even a man and his heritage. This is his inheritance. The very thing that they, these nobles and these uh, people were called upon to enforce so that there would not be this kind of action, they were guilty of breaking these kind of laws themselves and leading people into that, that same situation to do the same thing. You know, we do as we're taught. We do as we're led. Education simply means to lead out of something. To educate someone, you lead out of them what is within them, and you make it uh, grow and, and help them to to uh, use the talents they have. And so when someone is educated in the wrong direction, or it's led out of them to follow the wrong kind of doings, that's what they follow. That's why there's a great responsibility this day and hour upon churches, upon pastors, upon uh, laymen, upon uh, the Christian population itself, the local church itself, to be a leader in the right way. And if we do not lead in the right way, we cannot expect those people that we're trying to lead to follow in the right way. And so God give us good leaders and good ones that have convictions about something in the way they lead and the way they direct. And if we have that, we can follow that kind of leadership. You remember I've used several times about Peter after the resurrection and how that everyone was so willing quickly to follow him. And Peter said, I go fishing. And they said, we're going to go with you. He said, I'm going to go to a prayer meeting. They said, well, we'll go with you. If I'm going to wait here and pray till the Lord uh, sends the Holy Spirit down to empower the church, we'll wait here and pray with you. But you see, it all depends on how we're led. And let's try to set an example of leadership. That's why James says concerning the ministry, he says, Be ye not many masters, for ye shall receive the greater condemnation. What does he mean by that? If we do not live up to our standard as leaders, masters, or guides, then we're going to suffer the greater for it. And so we we have to be very careful. It says in verse 3, Therefore, look at this word, therefore. Therefore, thus saith the Lord. Now, I like what Micah says. When Micah's speaking, he doesn't speak of himself. He speaks of what God says. You know, we need people today that'll say, Thus saith the Lord. We need people today that'll say, Never mind my opinion, uh, my little bit of knowledge about the situation. Let's see what God has to say about it. And look at God's Word and take it as it is. And then we'll have the right direction. Uh, We quoted a psalm. You find it in the 119th Psalm, possibly verse 133. I'll check it out in a moment. But it says, Order my steps in thy word, 
And let not any iniquity have dominion over me. You can check it out while I'm trying to go ahead with this. But it's Psalm 119. And I may have the right verse. Do I? Julie says I do. Okay. So, uh, order my listen carefully again. Order my steps in thy word. We have God's word to direct us. And then the opposite side, or the, the negative side of it, and let not, there's the not, let not any iniquity have dominion over me. So we need to be guided and directed by the word of God. So, Micah says here, therefore... And he's going to bring the message of judgment because of the sins we just talked about of Israel and their leaders. And he says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Behold, against this family do I devise. I want you to notice the word devise in verse 3 and drop back to verse 1. It says, Woe to them that devise iniquity. Now then, look at verse 3. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Behold, against this family do I devise an evil, from which ye shall not remove your necks, neither shall ye go haughtily, for this time is evil. God says, If you made your plans for iniquity, I made my plans to counteract that and to bring judgment on it. You see, God has a plan too. And He doesn't let people just run to and fro without some consequences of their actions. And you know there's a lot of people that feel like because God hasn't judged them immediately on the spot, that He's given it up and he'll forget all about it. He will not forget because he says, there's another scripture that says, because, listen carefully, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore, the heart, one heart, of the sons, plural, of men is fully set in them to do evil. Men of evil hearts, but there are many sons that are that way. And he says, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. They're saying, well, if God... Uh, have you ever heard people say, well, you know, if, if this is wrong, let God strike me down or lightning hit me or whatever, you know. I wouldn't put myself in that position because it just might happen some of these days. Don't ever, don't ever tempt God to bring a judgment that you know pro- probably needs to be brought because He very well might bring that judgment. And so here God is saying, therefore, thus saith the Lord... Behold, against this family do I devise an evil. God says, I've prepared, I've planned something for you too. And it says, from which you shall not remove your necks. You're not going to get out of this, he says. There's no way of escape. There's another scripture that says, He that being often reproved, hardeneth his neck, shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. So when God says that you shall not remove your necks, there's not going to be any recourse but to accept what is brought. Neither shall ye go haughtily. God was sick and tired of their pride. Haughtiness. Haughtily. For this time is evil. He means it was evil or a judgment was about to come upon them. Now then, verse 4, he says, In that day shall one take up a parable against you and lament with a doleful lamentation. A doleful lamentation. With lamentation of lamentations. Lament and lament. And say, We be utterly spoiled. He had He hath changed the portion of my people. How hath he removed it from me? Turning away, he hath divided our fields. Because of their backsliding, he had turned away from them that in the mercy that he had extended previously, now to judgment. You know, God is able to change from mercy to judgment. God is merciful, but God is a God of judgment too. The Bible teaches us not to tempt the Lord or not to put him on the spot as to whether or not his actions will be... uh, for us in mercy or if we sin and devise iniquity 
if they will not turn around and be in judgment. And they will be both ways. You know, if a person only has one kind of a, a thing about his character and doesn't have several uh, characteristics, we call him very narrow, don't we? God is not narrow. God is diverse. And God can look upon us in mercy and in love and in compassion. And when He sees sin, He can look upon us in righteousness and in judgment. You see, He's a complete God, isn't He? And He expects us to act in that way too. We, we should look upon sin with horror and with uh, judgment in our view that it should be taken care of. You know, we, when we look at our society and we see things that are very unjust happening to people that, do, that deserve a little uh, judgment uh, and justice on their part, it, it kind of gets under our skin, doesn't it? We, we don't like that for people to be treated that way. We don't like that kind of a situation in the world today when we see it on every hand. So, God is, God is more so righteous and holy and able to look down upon sin and iniquity. He says, the Bible says He's of pure eyes than to behold iniquity. That means He will not look upon it with favor. And the Bible tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So that we know that... Uh, there's none righteous, no, not one. Therefore, we want God's mercy. We don't want justice. And we want justification through Christ. But justification simply means that Christ bore the judgment and that we was due to us. And therefore, God will extend His mercy and we can be justified by faith in the finished work of Jesus. That He paid the penalty all the way for our sins. The sacrifice for our sins. Otherwise, we would owe God everything. And we would owe that debt which we could not pay. But Jesus paid it all. We sing a song. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. We sang that song a little bit ago. If you want the text for it, look in Revelation. As the men sang, Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Look in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5. It says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and prince of the kings of the earth, look, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. You see the basis for songs like that? I believe the people that wrote some of our hymns in our hymn book knew what the Bible said, didn't they? And many of them. If we'll follow those that are inspired by Scripture, we'll find a lot better hymns for our singing than some of this uh, stuff you hear nowadays that has no basis whatsoever, a scriptural basis for it. Hymns should be scriptural too, you know that? It's like we sing little hymns like, uh, Whosoever surely meaneth me. It's a very simple little song. Whosoever meaneth me. Well, the Bible says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So it's scriptural, isn't it? It means me. In spite of all that I am without the Lord, it means me that He will save me, that He will keep me, and that I can be His child because He included me in that number. It's like Ron and Sharon saying a lot of times, there's room at the cross for you. Well, there's room for everyone. Someone says in Noah's day, that ship would only take so many people into it. It took all who would go into it, didn't it? There was no one left out. You don't read the record where anyone tried to get in and, and were left out. You read the record that they rejected it and they wouldn't believe Noah. God knew how many was going to try to get in first place. And by grace, He saved Noah and his family. 
But there would have been room for every soul that was willing. But God knew the hearts of those that rejected his invitation. And God invited Noah by grace and says, Come thou and all thy house into the ark. And he came in. So God includes all who will receive him. And right here, notice uh, Micah 2 verse 4. In that day shall one take up a parable against you and lament with a doleful lamentation and say, We be utterly spoiled. He hath changed the portion of my people. How hath he removed it from me? Turning away, he hath divided our fields. And he turned their backsliding uh, into judgment instead of extending mercy. Now look, in verse 5. Therefore thou shalt have none that shall cast a cord by lot in the congregation of the Lord. This refers to a lot of land, a portion, an inheritance. Look in Joshua 13 verse 6. Joshua 13, verse 6. There are many places you could find the statement. But I'll read the last part of the verse. It tells about the Sidonians and so on. And then it says, Then will I drive out from before the children of Israel. Only, the last part of verse 6, Only divide thou it by lot unto the Israelites for an inheritance, as I have commanded thee. So he, he told them that they would receive a portion. Remember in the days of the Oklahoma run, when they had they run... Uh, from every place that they could come, Missouri and everywhere, into uh, Oklahoma because there was a land rush and there was free land and you could put your claim out on a quarter of a section of land. In fact, Louise's grandparents got theirs that way. Still in kind of in the family over in Oklahoma on Deep Red, right north of Burt Burnett, Texas, and north of Wichita Falls, south and west of Lawton a little bit. But that's the way they got their their land was in that run. And many of you could relate to some of your uh, family in the past probably that did the same thing. But you staked out your claim. And that's what, what uh, Israel had to do when they entered in the land of Canaan. Joshua led them in. and God, uh, God told Joshua, He says, Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that shall be your coast. And you go in and stake out your claim and divide it by lot under the children, tribes and the families of the children of Israel. And they made their claims in, in that fashion. God set boundaries for them. And by the way, in those days, in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy especially, it says, remove not the old landmarks. When they made their claim, you were in trouble if you moved it over and didn't leave it where it was supposed to be. How many of you have seen Sanford and Son on the television? Did you see the other night he was arguing about his property and that in Julio, I think, so next neighbor. And so he got a surveyor out there. And the surveyor put the stakes down and he walked out there and he was going over there on that other property. And he's looking for the stakes. He said, no, no stakes. And that son said, they're over here, Pop. They're on this side. Boy, he didn't want, he started to move them over. He didn't like that where they actually were. He said, all that belongs to Julio over there. Well, sometimes we think the marks are where they're. They're not supposed to be. But anyway, God knows where the true marks are and we're not supposed to mess around with them. And you know, the Lord knows where the marks are for His house and His church and, and believers and where we stand. And he has, a, he has a boundary for us. And He wants us to stay within our own boundary and He wants us to do what He would have us to do. And He's very concerned about us not trespassing upon the other fellow's rights as Christians. And we should not trespass upon someone else's domain. Uh, so notice this. Therefore, uh, verse 5, you have uh, Micah 2, verse 5. Look at it. 
Therefore thou shalt have none that shall cast a cord by lot in the congregation of the Lord. Now then, verse 6. Prophesy ye not, say they, to them that prophesy. They shall not prophesy to them that they shall not take a shame. They did not listen to the true prophets of God. They said, don't prophesy. But they gave ear to plenty of the false prophets. And the false prophets would flatter them with their lies. But the true prophets of God, they said, we don't want to hear what you have to say. Remember back in the Kings, that's the way it was. One of the Kings says, one of the Kings, he says, don't let uh, this, this, and by the way, it was by the same name, Micaiah, and it wasn't this Micah that we're talking about, but they're the similar names. In fact, they come from the same root meaning. Micah means Micaiah as well. So anyway, this other Micaiah that prophesied in the days of the of one of the kings that said, let not him speak because he doesn't say anything good about me. He's wanting some false prophets to tell him what to do. And uh, you remember old Ahab, he had those that prophesied lies. And he accepted that, but if it was for his good, his favor, in his favor, even though it was a lie and it would not be that way. You know, a lot of people would rather believe a lie than the truth. But you know, God's Word says preaching the truth in love. And the Bible says, uh, Paul told Timothy, he says, preach the Word, be instant in season, out of season. He says, reprove, rebuke, and then he says, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. And the job of the the preacher today is much similar, except those prophets wrote under inspiration and we have their record written down. But let's notice, prophesy ye not, say they, to them that prophesy. They shall not prophesy to them that they shall not take shame. Now look at verse 7. O thou that art named the house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord straightened? Here's an, a, passion, a passionate appeal to the people. And he's saying, is the Spirit of the Lord straightened? That's a question. Are these His doings? Do not my words do good? In other words, He's saying, now, do, does not, God's saying, does not my words do you good to him that walketh uprightly? They're still good words if a person will obey them. And He's pleading with them. And He's still appealing to their conscience to listen to what He has to say. And He's saying, is the Spirit of the Lord straightened? Is it shortened? Is it incapable of doing what it... Uh, was meant to do? Is God's Holy Spirit not at work? Well, certainly it is. And God was saying, as He gave these words to Micaiah, certainly here's an appeal for them to uh, listen and to be convicted of their wrongs and to do good and walk uprightly. And if they would do that, then of course they would be blessed. I want you to notice verse 8 now. He of late, even of late, my people is risen up as an enemy. What's he saying? Even of late, my people. He still calls them my people. Notice again and again. In fact, verse 9, the women of my people, he says. But notice this verse 8. He says, even of late, my people is risen up as an enemy. It's a terrible thing when God's children appear to be to God as an enemy instead of friend. And when people rise up against God in unbelief and accuse God of things or will not listen to God's Word and they act like they're filled with unbelief and rebellion and their conscience cannot be touched. You know, our consciences need to be tender. We need to have a conscience that God can deal with. Like the a song that Brother... Uh, <coughs> Curtis saying a little bit ago. And we need to have that same tenderness of heart and hope that God will lead us and guide us. Our conscience needs not be seared over with a hot iron so that it will not be affected by when we do something wrong. We ought to feel the nudge of it and the 
conviction of it. And the Holy Spirit, Paul says, my conscience also bearing me witness with the Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit and conscience are very close kin. And when the Holy Spirit convicts, it also brings down to a consciousness that, that we ourselves are responsible for the wrongdoing. It has to do with our inmost being. And it's like the psalmist said, we preached on it a week or two ago. Lord, try my heart and my reins. Remember that psalm that was the psalmist was not afraid. We talked about a dedicated Christian. He's, he's willing to be tested and tried. He says, search me, O Lord, and see if there be any wicked way in me. Well, if we could get every Christian in the church to have this kind of a feeling and tenderness of heart, but we might have a revival around here. That's the way it works. When everyone tries to get right with God and stay right with God, then we witness to others uh, around about us. Turn to Psalm 73. I want you to see what David says at the last part of it. Psalm 73. Well, David may not have written this one, but... Uh, no, Psalm 51. The one I know that he did write. Psalm 51 would be better. David didn't write all the Psalms, but Psalm 51. I want you to uh, pick up with verse 7. We, the, all of it would be good. Well, let's take it all. Start with verse 1. Have mercy, uh, Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. He says, Wash me throughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Now look, the next two verses. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then, look at that word then, circle it. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto That 13th verse is the key. It's after all this confession and repentance and God cleansing us and, and searching our hearts and we know we have a, uh, our own uh, situation correct before God and He's made it right for us. He says, Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted indeed. Back in Micah chapter 2, and we'll hurry along. I want to finish this second chapter as quickly as we're able to do it. Alright? Verse 8, Even of late my people is risen up as an enemy. You pull off the robe with a garment from them that pass by securely as men averse from war. They try to steal a fellow's fancy garments as he goes by. The women of my people have you cast out from their pleasant houses. They treated people wrong. From their children have you taken away my glory forever. Arise ye and depart, for this is not your rest, because it is polluted. It shall be, uh, destroy you, even with a sore destruction. In other words, he's saying they need to prepare. By the way, this was preparation for, their, uh, for a surrender to the Assyrian army that was about to bring this judgment that God has already uh, hinted about and talked about uh, so far. Now, verse 11, If a man walking in the Spirit and falsehood do lie, 
saying, I will prophesy unto thee of wine and of strong drink. He shall even be the prophet of this people. Now, can you imagine a prophet prophesying? I will prophesy unto thee of wine and of strong drink. Someone was telling me the other day that some preacher was uh, preaching. Who was that? Someone in the fellowship here in the congregation? Some preacher was preaching and saying, he didn't find anything in the Bible that was against strong drink. Well, he hadn't read some of the scriptures I know about. Did you? The Bible says, Wine is a mocker and strong drink is raging. And whosoever deceive thereby is not wise. Who hath woe, who hath sorrow, who hath redness of eyes, who hath wounds without a cause. They that tarry long at wine. And it tells thing after thing. You read Proverbs chapter 23 and you'll find a lot about it. But anyway, there's many more. It says, Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink. It's just as wrong for you to get the other fellow drunk as it is for you to do it yourself. You ever thought about that? And did you know I heard of one of the men last night? I believe it was one of the uh, senators that was talking about uh, after President Bush's speech and he was talking about uh, the drug problem that we have in the nation. And this particular man, I forget which one it was, said that alcohol is the number one drug problem in our whole country. He was wise enough to recognize that it was not cocaine and not all the others, though they're sometimes more deadly in some senses of the word and some of the other high-powered drugs. But what about alcohol? What about alcohol? And we tolerate that, don't we? Okay, verse 12 and 13. It says, I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. The future restoration is spoken of in these last two verses. And I believe it has not only gathering them out of the Assyrian and Babylonian captivity of old, but I believe the reference here is to a future regathering of Israel as well. It has a future fulfillment. It says, I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together as a sheep of Basra, as a flock in the midst of their fold. They shall make great noise by reason of the multitude of men. Now it says in verse 13, the breaker has come up before them. The one that is the breaker is the Lord Jesus Christ. They have broken up and have passed through the gate and are gone out by it. And their king shall pass before them. And the Lord on the and the Lord on the head of them. So there's a time that God will restore this scattered and dispersed people, even as He did restore them somewhat from their captivities of old. There's going to be a future day in the day of uh, in the book of Revelation when they're going to be restored. And Paul talks about it in the eleventh of Romans, and he tells about the nation being converted and turning back to God and being born in a day, so to speak. And he says, and so all Israel shall be saved. And that God will arise and turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And so all Israel shall be saved. You read it in the 11th of Romans where Paul is speaking about it. We thank you for your patience, kind attention. We'll pick up in our third chapter uh, Sunday night, the Lord willing. So try to be here. And I believe it'll do us good if we get in on all these teachings in the book of in, in the book of Micah, as well as all the minor prophets, because we have some very rich ones progressing as we go along. Okay, thank you.